You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Look, folks, you need gear to climb. Whether you're a wall climber with every gadget under the brutal, withering sun, or just a simple boulderer with 12 pads, a lithium powered fan, and that portable studio lighting rig for your TikToks. Moan do. Even barefoot boulderers need a flowy cotton shirt and a dab of conditioner once in a while. But Sportiva is here to help your footprint and your nagging conscience because after years of pursuing reductions, in April 2023, Sportiva USA became certified carbon neutral, which means through a combination of sustainable practices, renewable energy, and offsets, Sportiva USA's carbon emission is effectively nil. Is it a perfect balance like ants, trees, and chickadees? Well, probably not but it is a stated commitment of thought, resources, and budget towards sustainable commerce. Also, remember that the mothership in Italy meets the highest European environmental standards and is a model in the beautiful Val di Fiemme of the Dolomites. So yeah, climbing makes footprints, but go forth knowing that the best climbing boots and shoes don't have to cut too deep with Sportiva. Consider the belayer. Steadfast and sure-footed, the Belair is a breed apart. Often taken for granted, the Belair literally saves your life every single time you punt. And let's face it, that's a lot of disasters averted. Loyal and smart, whether it's the first time you've said take or the 100th, the Belair sits back and holds you right where you want to be while you brush that hold one more time. Even though both you and your trusty Belair know it ain't going to change a goddamn thing. The Blair just smiles and says, Dude, you totally got it next time. Even though there's no way on God's green earth you will in fact get it next time. So maybe it's time to honor the unsung hero of your journey with a fine gift from Peter W. Gilroy. Peter, a Blair himself, knows what a trinket or a sweet splitter hat, the ones with the mountain-inspired titanium badges, will do for a worn-out Blair spirit when you've been riding them hard. Artful jewelry and accessories can be found at PeterWGilroy.com for your belayer or any partner you've been forgetting to appreciate during that singular haze of the next burn. So consider your belayer and PeterWGilroy.com. One day you might look down and they'll be gone, eating that sandwich they've been thinking about since you took on the second bolt an hour ago. And don't forget to enter Enormo at checkout for a discount and to help this darn podcast. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous, 
It is May 31st, 2023, about 3.30 in the afternoon, and this is episode 264 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with Alita Contreras, who is a Venezuelan climber by birth, but Colombian climber in her heart. She is also a nascent filmmaker, a climbing coach, and a damn good rock climber. So we'll get to her in just a second. So I have some sad news. I'm going to miss the International Climbers Festival this year, the ICF in Lander, Wyoming, which is happening in the second weekend of July. I don't know those dates because I'm not going. What do I care? Um, I'm actually going to be doing something interesting. Uh, we'll be in Portugal during that time. Got the Enormo jet fueled up and bringing the whole family over there. Though I am a bit sad about this. I, I don't know how many in a row I've been to. I know I've missed a couple over the last decade, but I've been to a lot of international climbing festivals in Lander. Uh, I have a lot of friends in Lander. I think it plays a big part in the sort of life and history of this podcast, having kind of gone up there actually during the previous podcast. Anybody remember the previous podcast? Because of contractual agreements, I cannot mention it here. However, Lander, Good time, lots of friends, lots of great memories. So I'm going to miss it this year, but I still want to promote it. And they have never once paid me to promote the International Climbers Festival, though I do every single year, because I think it's a great festival. And Lander's a fun town, and it's a nice place to be in July. It's hot, hot as balls, actually. But as I've often said, don't worry about how hard you're climbing at a climbing festival, or if you're climbing at all. Of course, Lander does have one of the great climber bars in the country, in the Lander Bar. What's more important, the climbing or the climbing bar? At a festival, I'd argue it's the bar. The other bummer is that a bunch of friends are going to be there. And I want to uh, mention that Katie Brown is presenting at the International Climbers Festival, an old friend of mine and also an awesome guest on the EnormaCast. My friend Lauren Calloway is going to be there. Alita, who's in this interview today, is going to be premiering her film there, which we'll talk about in the interview. And I'm sure stacks of other people that I'm not even thinking about are going to be there. Also, Alan Watts is the keynote presenter who I have never met, but I've always admired. Yeah, it's going to be a great time, even without me. I know. I know. It'll take it down a slight notch. Although last year, I just uh, sat in my hotel room fretting about my presentation the whole time. But I did bring the crowd to tears and myself to tears and Tommy Caldwell to tears. So I guess the fret was worth it. Anyway, look up the schedule, look up the tickets, look up the dates. Climbingfestival.org is the website, and uh, have a good time. Tell me how it was. But don't cry for me. I won't be in Argentina, but I will be in Portugal, followed by Mallorca. Yeah, you don't have to feel sorry for me. Ever. Okay, let's get to Alita. Alita Contreras. Like I said, she is Venezuelan by birth, but Colombian by nature, I guess you might say. And also her father is Colombian, and she spent much of her climbing life there. And she's also making a film, or hopefully has pretty much made the film because it's supposed to premiere in just over a month. I'm sure they'll be working on it to the last minute that will premiere at Lander that will highlight women climbers in Colombia. It's called Guerreras, and uh, it's going to be awesome, I bet. Alita is also a climbing coach. And has some really interesting things to say about women and the menstrual cycle and how that fits into climbing and training and strength. And frankly, Stoke, 
And before you dudes like say, well, I guess that's not for me, I think it'd be helpful if you ever climb with women or ever plan on climbing with women. There, mister, I live in my 2002 Tercel. And there's more in this interview too, so stay tuned, gentlemen. Okay, let's get to it. A nice international enormal cast with a lovely international accent from Alita Contreras. Is there any fashion statement in climbing more controversial than shorts? Yes, dear listener, I mean short pants, knickers, if you will. Too short, too long, too much booty, too little leg, too baggy, and just too darn tight. Well, guten tag, Wolfgang. Is that a number two Camelot in your pocket, or are you just glad to see me? But in the end, when you do find a pair of shorts you love, it's like a dream pie filled with real dreams. And of course, Black Diamond is here to help you find your dream shorts. From the lightweight flat iron to the bomb-proof valley shorts, Black Diamond has men and women's shorts for under the harness or a breezy, bouldering sesh. The new dirtbag short even comes in a retro corduroy option, so you can look just like you rolled out of a hazy VW bus in Camp 4 circa 1977. No, Ranger, sir. You must be smelling that skunk we hit up in Wawona. Poor little guy never had a chance. So come find your next pair of forever shorts at blackdiamond.com or your favorite local shop. Anyway, we opened earlier um, on our test recording about me asking you about coffee and you said you were trying to drink a little bit less. Um, So anyway, how many cups were you drinking before? Like six or five cups a day. Yeah, like all day. That's a lot. And you can still sleep. Yeah, well, the last cup that I drink is like at 4.30 because yeah. if I drink coffee after that, that I don't, I don't sleep very well. So I start like, like the first thing that I do when I wake up is like prepare my coffee. And then <clears throat> I don't know if I told you I am a translator. Well, I have different mm-hmm. jobs, but one of them is being a translator. So while I am translating, I am drinking a lot of coffee. Keep that mind sharp. But you are Colombian, so you're supporting the economy down there. Um, by just powering exactly. through a bunch of coffee, but you, what 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 yeah, led that's... you to, to 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 suddenly be like, I think that's too much? Because you you told me you were trying to drink a little bit less. Yeah, but every time that I think that it is too much, I'm gonna think I am supporting my economy. <laughs> exactly. I am trying to drink a little bit less because coffee has a very, uh, a lot of properties that are good, but also some that are not that good, like. It's not that good for your metabolism and stomach and many things. And I also tend to have some hormonal problems. And if I drink too Mm. much coffee, it doesn't help with that. So, yeah, I'm trying to drink less. I'm not going to stop drinking coffee, but I'm just trying to drink instead of, I don't know, five or six cups, like only two or three a day. Not drinking coffee would be uh, insane, in my opinion. And I've talked to people who are like, I'm not, I'm, I'm, like dropping coffee altogether, I'm like, why would you deny yourself that pleasure of the morning cup yeah. of coffee? It's just it's like, yeah, I'm like, so, I'm like so into yeah, it. Yeah, no, I'm, I did like a two month coffee detox, and it was horrible. Like, it's not only that I really <laughs> like, I mean, I really like like the taste of it, but it's also like part of my routine. You know, like I wake mm-hmm. up and I am super happy about preparing my coffee. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, for me, like also drinking a cup of coffee before my training is kind of a ritual, you know, like I drink mm-hmm. my cup of coffee and then I am like, okay, I am in training mode. I am ready for this. 
if someone you know told me i if i stop drinking coffee i'll live like five years longer i think i'd just say all right well i'll just those five years are probably not the greatest years anyway so <laughs> like i don't know what i would trade for not drinking coffee but it'd have to be more than that so um i mean the sound of it like like i don't know i use a mocha pot like the sound of the mocha pot just like i can get almost like a little proxy coffee feeling just by hearing it. It's really, I, it's just like, it's what I wake up and it's the first thing I'm like, I can't wait to hear that pot brewing. So, oh, I mean, that's, that's like, yeah, it's all the signs of a total addict. I mean, that's also the other problem, but you know, whatever. <laughs> like I said, there's worse yeah, things also, is, is the way I look at it. I don't smoke, I, right? Oh, Some people get up and smoke a no, cigarette. So. <laughs> exactly. Also, that's what I wanted to say. Like, I am very healthy. I don't smoke. I have never done any type of drugs in my life. Like I don't go party, you know, I have mm -hmm. to have something like an addiction <laughs> or something. Yes, exactly. You cannot be that right. healthy. Every scientific study that says it's somehow bad for you, there's 10 that say it's good for you. So I just ignore the, the bad ones. And yeah, and me on, too. But, um, I just ignore yeah. them too. <laughs> yeah, same oh, thing yeah. for me. I didn't mean to get off here on coffee so much, but uh, like I said, you're Colombian. Uh, so it's, you know, the first thing you hear as a kid is, is coffee is from Colombia, although now we know it's, it's also from worldwide, oh, but, nice. um, <laughs> you know, I, I've been to Colombia. Um, I did a climbing trip there about a decade ago, I think, mm -hmm. um, I, I've lost track of, of all that stuff, but, um, yeah, I was excited to talk to you because I actually really enjoyed my time in Colombia. I was, um, I don't know if I was surprised, but. Um, it had such a different flavor to um, other places I'd traveled in South America. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to talk to you about the scene down there in Colombia. Yeah, well, actually, I was born in Venezuela. I was born there, but my father is Colombian. Um, like mm -hmm. 20 or 30 years ago, there were like a lot of immigrants from different places going to Venezuela when the economic situation was way better. So my father was one of those people who immigrated to Venezuela and he just stayed there. He met my mother and then we were born like me and my, my brother and sister. Yeah, so I was born there and that's where I, where I also grew up. But my father, uh, he loves Colombia very much. So the Colombian culture was always present in our lives. We went to Colombia every single year, actually. It's very weird because in Venezuela, the only city that I knew was Merida, the one where I was born. And because all the times, like all the vacations, Christmas, whatever, we went to Colombia. So I didn't know any other city of, from Venezuela besides Merida. And I knew a lot of cities from Colombia. Yeah. So we were like very close to Colombia. As I said, we weren't there every time. But also, like in my house, there were a lot of Colombian things and how we celebrated Christmas or many things like had a lot of, um, how do you say that, in influence from the Colombian culture. So Colombia right. was always like a, a very important part of my life. And then due to the, to the economic situation in Venezuela, well, to many problems in Venezuela, I decided to move to Colombia because I have both citizenships and I've been living in Colombia for the past almost 10 years, nine years. Was it a case that like the situations have flipped a little bit? Was oh, Did your father go to Venezuela for economic opportunity at that time or was there some other reason? 
Yeah, well, he he moved to Venezuela when he was like only 16 years old. Okay. It was his mother who decided to move to Venezuela because he, she okay. found a job in Venezuela. And at that time, the situation in Venezuela was way better than in Colombia. So everybody wanted to go to Venezuela. He, he could not afford to go to university in Colombia, but he could in Venezuela. So he just stayed there. And he went to college. And then, as I said, he met my mother. He, they got married. And yeah. And since the situation was still better in Venezuela than in Colombia when he graduated, right. he just stayed there. Yeah. It's, but but yeah. it's kind of interesting that, yeah, the, the roles have sort of flipped and, and leaving Venezuela to Colombia made more sense for you than it did yeah. the other way around for your father. So it's, it's kind of interesting that 30 years, how much things changed on both sides of the border. Yeah, exactly. Like 15 years ago, there were 6 million of Colombian living in Venezuela. And now, like there are many Venezuelan people from my generation whose fathers or mothers or whatever come from Colombia. So many of my, in my generation have both citizenships and many of us are like going to Colombia now. What was the opportunities? What, why did you move? You know, what did you move into when you, when you went to Colombia? I was at the university and then I graduated and mm -hmm. I just realized that I had no opportunities in Venezuela. Like there was no future for me in the country because of the situation there. So I was still like living with my parents and I was like, if I stay here, I'm going to live with them like the rest of my life. My relationship with my parents is really nice and I love them very much but you know at some point you want to move out <laughs> <clears throat> yeah exactly yeah. so and there was no chance for me for that in Venezuela and I, I studied languages and while I was a student I had some scholarships and I lived in Germany and I lived in Canada and my plan was to go to Germany after finishing school and I got an offer for a scholarship to do a master in Germany. And it was like kind of a, an exchange. They sent two German students to Venezuela and then two Venezuelan students to Germany. And that was going to be my plan, like going to Germany, do this master. And then I wanted to do like a PhD, whatever. But then this organization that was going to give me the scholarship they sent me a message and they told me like we cannot risk to send two german people to venezuela because it's too dangerous so we are not doing this exchange anymore and i was like oh wow so what am i going to do now and my sister was already living in colombia and i was like very desperate i didn't want to be in venezuela anymore it's sad to say like i love my country and it's a beautiful country but it's very bad, like the situation right now there. So my sister told me, like, why don't you come to Colombia? Like, you have both citizenships and I am here and there are way more opportunities for you. And she told me that. And 10 days later, I moved to Colombia. So I, it was like a very quick decision. What was your interest in the outdoors? What was your interest in, in, in climbing? Was that at all part of your life in Venezuela uh, before um you moved i mean where did that come from yeah i i started climbing in venezuela when i was in the university and yeah actually you know 
most of my family in Colombia are not in Bogota, which is the capital of Colombia. They are mm -hmm. close to La Mojarra, the place that you where you were. But I decided to move to Bogota, even though my family wasn't there, because if you live in Colombia, the best place to live is Bogota, because there are so many climbing areas close to the city and also the best climbing gyms are in Bogota. So I was like, well, I don't care if my family is somewhere else. I want to go to the place where I can climb the most. So that's what I decided to go to Bogota. Like around Bogota, there are like eight different climbing places for bouldering and also for sport climbing. And as I said, the best climbing gyms are in that city. So, I mean, what, what did it look like to start climbing at university? Was it a, a gym? Was there kind of a scene like... Um, you know, one of the things I'm always interested in is what about it hooks somebody to the point of like, you know, you're a university student, you find climbing, and then all of a sudden, you know, mm -hmm. I guess a couple years later, some of your life decisions are centered around climbing. And it's, you know, you just said, oh, I, I was, you know, make sure I wanted to move to Bogota mm -hmm. because there's climbing. As I said, I started climbing when I was in the university and it was because mm -hmm. a friend of mine was a climber and I was always interested in the sport. But when I was a kid, I was a professional swimmer. In my childhood, everything I did was like swimming and going to school. I trained like at 5 a.m. in the morning before school. Then I trained like at 1.30 after school and then in the evening again. So even though I was always like, since I was a kid, interested in climbing, I never tried it because I was a swimmer, you know, and there was no space and time for another sport. But then I stopped swimming when I was like about 15 or 16. Then I did no sports like for three years. And then I, I met a girl who told me that she was a climber. And I was like, oh, wow, I want to try it. And I it can sound as a cliche, but really like the first time that I climbed, I was like, how could I live without this? I was so happy and I bought a membership and I started going to the gym like every single day and I started getting injured very fast because I didn't want to stop. Climbing gave me a type of happiness <clears throat> that I think that I have never experienced before doing anything else in my life. I did like swimming, but I was not that passionate about swimming as I am and as I was with climbing when I started. So I was so happy every time that I was climbing. Everything was so new. And I think one of the most beautiful things about climbing is that, I don't know, I've been climbing for 15 years, almost 16, and I still have so much to learn. You know, it's not that I can say like, oh, I've been climbing for 16 years. I have learned everything you can learn about climbing. I know everything. You are learning every single day. And I realized that when I started climbing, like even if you go bouldering every day, each boulder that you try is different. So it's always a new challenge. Like every day you're challenging yourself, like in many different aspects, like physically, but mentally too, emotionally, like many things. And um, yeah, I decided that I just wanted to do that as much as I could. And I started like planning my life around climbing, you know, like I was at the university and I loved what I studied and I have always like all my life, like been a good student and have good grades. And that didn't change. Like many climbers start climbing and they stop going to college or they stop doing the, their duties or they start like not having good grades because they want, they only want to climb. That was not my case. I did want to climb all the time, but I also enjoyed very much what I was studying. So 
and I am very disciplined and organized. So I plan everything so that, that I could like go to the university, like do all my homework and also train. And I, for example, I also love uh, dancing salsa. I am part of a salsa academy and I invest a lot of time on that too. Climbing is my biggest priority. And for example, if I don't have a lot of time one day, I would prefer not to dance that day instead of not climbing. But still, I really try to organize my life so that I can do all the things that I like doing. And even now, like, I could not say, like, there are many people who say, like, oh, I would be so happy if I could just climb and earn money from that and not do anything else and not mm -hmm. work or, or whatever. I love climbing more than anything else, but I still, like, enjoy having a job and I still, like, love, I don't know, dancing salsa I have done some very long climbing trips uh, where I can only like climb because you are like in the middle of the mountains or whatever. And then after three months, I start like missing like my salsa academy or my job or other things, you know. So as I said, like I do need more things in my life than only climbing, mm -hmm. even though climbing is like the center of everything. And I really plan like everything around climbing. So you studied languages. Um, you know, what languages do you speak or are you fluent in as far as your translating and things like that? Yeah, well, um, the main language of my studies was German and mm -hmm. after German, English and then French. So I speak okay. the three of, three of them. And as I said, I had the opportunity while I was in college to go to Germany. So I was there doing part of my studies like for more than a year. And then I was able to go to Canada, uh, to the French part of Canada. So I improved my French. Now I am in the U.S. <laughs> so I can practice my English. Um, yeah. And I work mainly with German and French. Uh, I'm sorry, German and English. I don't work that much with French. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how any of this kind of comes together and who, who you are as a climber. But once you left Venezuela... I mean, did you have opportunities to climb outdoors um, there? Is there an outdoor climbing scene? Well, I climbed outdoors for the first time after only two weeks. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, in the climbing gym, I met some people who invited me to go climbing outdoors. Uh, there were some small climbing areas close to my city, to Merida, and they invited me and that's, wow. Like I remember the first time that I climbed outdoors, I was like, okay, I already knew that I love this, but now it's like, <laughs> I want to marry this sport. <laughs> you know, I want to marry climbing. But then I moved to Colombia. And then, as I said, close to Bogota, there are so many climbing areas that I could like start going outdoors every single weekend. And I was so happy. And yeah, so... In Venezuela, I climbed mostly in the gym and I was also participating a lot in competitions. And then when I moved to Colombia, I was participating in competitions, but my focus changed to outdoor climbing because there were so many climbing areas that I just started like for the first time having projects outdoors. Um, yeah, I started like focusing my training on my outdoor projects that happened in Colombia. Yeah. So tell me about that. Um, you know, interfacing with the with the scene in Colombia. Tell me about the community there um, in, in Bogota. For me, at the beginning, it was kind of hard 
because when I arrived to Colombia, I started participating in a lot of competitions. And I was lucky that I I participated in 53 competitions in Colombia and I won 52. But at the beginning, like, you know, I was the new girl. It's like, who is that? You know, and I was not like welcomed by some climbers, but some of the female climbers, but because they were like, who is that girl? You know, I was kind of the new girl. So it at the beginning, it was hard for me. And you- like and wait a second. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So you came in and you you showed up and then you you basically dominated the competition scene for fifty two yeah. out of fifty three competitions. Yeah, I could see how maybe people were a little annoyed by that. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. I just wanted to put and, a point on is, that. Yeah. <laughs> and this is kind of a hard topic for me to talk about right. because, okay, um, like. I I have always felt that I am half Colombian, half Venezuelan, you know, because as I said, I was born in Venezuela, but my father is like the person that I love the most in my life. And he made sure that the Colombian culture was always part of my life. And we, as I said, we always went to Colombia like every single year, whatever. So I really felt that I was also Colombian. But Mm -hmm. when I arrived to Colombia, people treated me like the Venezuelan girl you know, right. and I was always like a foreign, even though I was like, oh, I am half Colombian too. And I feel Colombian too. And I always say that I am also Colombian. Like for many people, I was like the girl from Venezuela. And many mm-hmm. people didn't like, like that the girl from Venezuela was the one who was winning the competitions, you know? So that for me, that was like very hard at the beginning. Like there were competitions where, I don't know, I started competing and no one was like shitting me up. And then the older girls came out and competed. And since they were Colombian, then they, everyone was like shooting them up. And I was like, oh, okay, no one is supporting me. You know, it was hard for me to concentrate sometimes in the competitions, realizing that people were not supporting me. And then at some point I was like, okay, I don't care. Like, I'm just gonna focus on what I have to focus. And if they don't like me to win, then I don't care. And I'm still going to try to do the, my best, you know? But then, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's kind of normal, maybe. And then after some months that I started, like, having making friends and whatever, then it changed. But actually, I've been in Colombia for nine years, and it's still people consider me to be the Venezuelan girl, you know, which which has always, as I said, been hard for me, like, I said, I am Colombian. And people are like, no, you're not. You're Venezuelan. I am like, I am both. You know, that's that's mm. been always like a hard topic for me. Like to feel so, that I don't um, belong somehow. You mentioned 53, specifically 53 competitions. So what what um, warranted moving on from competition or did you do you still participate in that part of climbing? No, I don't anymore because there was no like a federation in Colombia. So sure. I was competing a lot, but we could not go to international competitions because there was no like Colombian Federation. So I was like, mm-hmm. I am putting all my energy and I will not be able to go to any competition, like interna- international competition. So I was like, I don't know. We are always the same girls competing with each other in the national competitions. And I really wanted to go to out the international competitions but it was not possible 
in 2018, I was living in Ecuador uh, for a year uh, because my ex-boyfriend was studying in Ecuador and there was like a Pan-American competition. And even though I was in the city where the competition took place, I was not able to participate because there was not like Colombian Federation. And the Colombian Federation was like in process to be activated again. So I trained a lot for that competition, thinking that maybe at the end of the year, the Federation was going to be activated and I would be able to go to that competition. So I trained a lot for that competition. I even started doing speed climbing, which I don't like because I wanted to go there. And then at the end of the year, the Federation was still not activated and I was not able to go to the camp, even though it was in like the city where I was. They didn't have to support me like i mean the federation with anything i was there and i couldn't go and i was like okay i'm just gonna stop like training for competitions because i'm not going to any competitions then i changed like my goals and i said like okay then i'm gonna start training for other projects and for the very first time in my life i kind of focus on having a goal outdoors to try to send my first 13c and then I started like training for that goal. And then at the end of the year, I could send my first 13C and my first 13Ds. So you, you bailed on Ecuador. So that was back in Colombia that you started refocusing on outdoor climbing? It was actually in Ecuador. Uh, like, oh, really? Um, yeah. I was there for a year. And like after six months of being there, I realized that I was not going to go to that Pan-American competition. So I was like, okay, I'm switching my goal now and I'm going to like train to be able to climb my first 513C. And then I was like, okay, what I'm going to do is that at the beginning of next year, I'm going to go to Mexico, to El Salto, and I'm going to find a 13C there that I can climb. So that's what I did. So I started working, like training for that, like in, I don't know, July. And then I went to Mexico in January. Yeah, because I was about to ask you, like, where were you climbing a 513C in Ecuador? I was there like 15 years ago, and I was like searching for rock climbing. Uh, Where were you located (laughs) in Ecuador when you were there? Sport climbing is more developed. Outdoor sport climbing is more developed in Colombia than in Ecuador. There's not that much Mm -hmm. sport climbing in Ecuador. But it was also hard to find a partner because my ex-boyfriend was doing his master and he was like very focused on his master. So he was not climbing much. And Mm -hmm. most of the people that I knew in the gym, they were like more mountainers than climbers. So they climb a little bit in the gym, but then on the weekends, they always wanted to go to the mountains. So they were always inviting me to go to the mountains, but I wanted to go climbing. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to train very much this year. And I trained a lot in the gym. I didn't go like outdoor climbing that much that year. Yeah. But then I went to Mexico for two months and I climbed outdoors the whole two months. So it was okay. A lot of, a lot of what I like to do on this is talk about evolutions, um, you know, from, from gym climbing to outdoor climbing, from competitions to, you know, as you said, to projecting and things like that. What about that evolution to to coaching? Uh, I imagine, you know, that was something that was probably casual. You were helping uh, friends or climbers that that weren't as good as you, and then it evolved into something else entirely. So, tell me a little bit about that evolution, um, and when you've sort of felt capable of 
going beyond just casual advice to actual coaching? Yeah, that, as you say, that's pr that was pretty casual. You know, like when I started climbing, I was so motivated that I never wanted to stop. And because of that, I started getting injured all the time. Because of that, I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to try to do it like it, in, a right, in the right way so that I am not injured all the time. So I started like buying books about training and reading books about training and listening to podcasts about training and watching videos and everything. And I started like experimenting with myself with all these things that I was learning in these books. And I was there in the climbing gym, like with my timer and making notes in, in my notebooks. And then my friends realized like, oh, what are you doing? I was like, yeah, I'm training. I am doing this and that and whatever. And I have to rest two minutes between blah, blah, blah. And they were like, oh, would you like to help me too? And I was like, I am not a coach. I am experimenting with myself. And they were like, oh, you can experiment with me too. Then since my friends started asking me, and it was not like only experimenting with my own body anymore, but with other people's bodies, I was like, okay, I have to learn more. So I read more books and I, I don't know, I subscribed to some climbing magazines, whatever that had like um, articles about training. And yeah, I just started like learning more and more. And then when I went to Germany, when I was in the university, <clears throat> as I said, I got a scholarship to go to Germany to to study there. And I was competing a lot and I had good results in competition. So there there was a coach who approached me and told me like, oh, because he realized that it was myself who was like planning my own training. And he told me like, oh, so you're a coach. And I was like, no, I am not. But I coach myself. Oh, well, I like what you do and it's giving good results and you're like having good results in competitions. Would you like to like help us with the training of the female team, whatever? And I was like, but I'm not a coach. And he was like, yeah, but you, we can help you. So I started like being a coach um, in Germany, like working with that team and they could me they took me to different like workshops and courses and you know and then i learned more and i also learned more more by working with these real coaches and then when i went back to venezuela like my friends knew that i was working as a coach in germany so they were like oh can you help me now and i'm going to pay you and they started like paying me a little bit and then I went to Canada to work in a university and exact the same thing happened. Like I was competing in Canada and the coaches there realized that it was me who was organizing my old, my own training plan. And they asked me like, oh, would you like to help us with the kids? And that's how it happened. So it's crazy because I, I never looked for it, you know, like I was coaching myself and I was actually in those countries for my language studies. And at some point I always ended up being a coach in those countries too, which is right. crazy. <clears throat> and then when I moved to Colombia, uh, I created a group for females, which is, which was very nice. And I also coach some kids. Um, yeah. Like I have, like my main job has always been like being a translator or a German teacher, but I have always like 
coach people too. The mental training thing is something that's kind of blown up in the last few years. You know, what's the basis for your ideas about what that means? Because I think it's a, you know, it's this term again that I, you hear a lot and I think sometimes of fear, right? Like with, with mental training, like, um, you know, Hazel Finlay does a lot of stuff with mm-hmm. outdoor climbing and with fear and with fear of falling. And, um, yeah. but there's a whole nother aspect I think that goes yeah. with competition climbing, which is, is more handling the pressure and, and, um, you know, the pressure of competition of being able to activate your, your highest performance, you know, basically exactly. on demand. So what, what's the basis of your ideas around mental training? Where does it go? At the end of the day, I've been coaching like for, I mean, mo- maybe 10 years already. And one of the things that I have realized is that in most of my students, the barriers are not physical, but mental. Some of them are super strong, but they cannot climb their best. They cannot perform their best because of some mental thing. And as you said, like, when people think of mental training for climbers, the first thing that they think of is like fear of falling, which is true. That's That happens and many people are afraid of falling, <clears throat> but it's not the only thing. It's like also fear of failure is also like anxiety towards a project, like how to handle the motivation because we are not motivated all the time, how to be disciplined with the training, like these are things that many people do not train. They like you can see in the gym people doing like apps and pull-ups with weights and dead hangs and whatever and then <clears throat> but they don't give even like 10 minutes to the mental part of it. And I think in my case it's the other way around. Like I think my head is like my biggest strength in climbing. I climb things that are harder than older people not because I am physically stronger than them, but because I can perform my 100%. And most of the people cannot even perform their 50%. So at the end of the day, my 100% is better than the 40% of many people, you know, but if they could perform their 100%, they would climb way better than me. So I think that's my strength. And then since I realized like, that's in many people, the biggest weakness in my, and in my case is my strength. Maybe that's how I can help them. One of the biggest problems is that people tend to see climbing or success and failure in climbing in terms of sending or not sending. You know, like if I send my project, I am successful. If I don't, I suck. And climbing is way more complicated than that and way more beautiful than that. You know, like if you understand that sending is only a plus, but what makes you a better climate is actually like the whole process that takes you to at some point send your project. If you understand that, it's way easier not to get frustrated and it's way easier to enjoy climbing more and also to focus like on smaller progresses and actually become better. In order to avoid frustration, climbers tend to focus only on the things that they can do, that they can perform at, so that they don't get frustrated. Like you see in the climbing gyms, I don't know, the guys who are super strong only doing these dinos and doing this like very long moves, powerful moves, but never going to vertical walls because 
you know, they are like, they don't want people to see them failing. That's right. the thing. Like if you avoid the things that you are bad at, you're never, never be able to improve in those things. You're going to just keep improving in the things that you're good at, but the branch between what you're good at and bad at is going to just keep increasing. So for example, what I do with my girls in the, in the climbing group that I have for females is that women and men, we have different abilities that are related to our genetics and to, yeah, to our reality as women and, and men. So for like women don't, uh, we don't develop much like the white fibers, white muscle fibers, which are the ones like related to being explosive and being very like physically strong. Men do. So that's like an ability that you can develop better. But women, we have better endurance. We, ha we are much more flexible. So what happens is that many women they never try dinos because we are naturally not good at dinos, you know, because of the type of fibers that we develop. So they never try dinos because why am I going to try a dino if I am not good at it? And that's exactly I, what I do in my training is just the other way around. Like if you are not good at dinos, that's exactly what you should be, should be trying. If you are like naturally good at vertical walls with, I don't know, small crimps and flexible flexibility and whatever those are already like capacities that you naturally have so you shouldn't be investing much time on the things that you can already do you should be investing time on the things that you are not able to do so just go and do, do that dino you know and see the things that i suck at as those things that give me like the biggest space to improve yeah and when climbers understand that that changes so much, like their approach to climbing, like sending stops being like the center of the climbing and they focus more like on enjoying the process. So you keep mentioning women as students. You said you started a group with just women in Colombia and um, mm -hmm. it sounds like that's sort of part of what you're being hired for here in the U.S. Is that a, a matter of circumstance or is that something that you've personally focused on in terms of your coaching? I started learning about different things because I was my own coach. I had never like had the intention of, oh, I'm going to use this with my students. It was for myself. And then when I was in Ecuador, I saw on the internet that there was like a course about female training, not in terms of climbing, but in general terms, like what is to what it is to coach women. And I was like, oh, I'm coaching myself. I am a woman. So maybe I can learn something from this. And it was so interesting, like I learned so many things, like about the menstrual cycle, about how our hormones have an impact in our performance in climbing during the different stages of our menstrual cycle, but also how we develop like different muscle fibers than men and how we can like use that in order to progress in those things that we are not very good at, like naturally. So, um, yeah, I started like using that knowledge with myself and I thought a lot of improvements. Like if I don't know, in my premenstrual week, which is like the weakest week for women because our hormonal levels are very low. Maybe if in that week, instead of training very hard, I use that week as my 
um, rest week or whatever, or I like lower the training uh, instead of like pushing myself very hard that during that week, that could be more beneficial because that week I am weaker. So I am not going to be able to assimilate my training that much. And I am more propensed to get injured. So if I do that, how can that like affect my training? And then in the second week of your menstrual cycle, you are super strong because your hormonal levels are very high and your estrogen is super high. And how about like maybe going trying my project on that week, because I'm going to be able to not only physically, but also mentally be able to fight more and my recovery is going to be better, you know, like, how about maybe trying that? And when I started, like, doing those changes in my training and also, like, learning how women could train for gaining more strength or to gain more power because those are, like, our natural um, weaknesses. Yeah, when I started using all that knowledge in myself, I saw some improvements in my climbing, but not only in my climbing, also like in my everyday life. Because hormones are, oh my God, <laughs> especially for women. It's not that men don't have them, but for us, like how they vary, how they vary in our menstrual cycle is crazy. So I saw these changes and these improvements. And then when I went back to Colombia, I talked to a friend of mine who is the owner of the climbing gym where I train and I told him like, Oh, I did this course. I took this course and it was very good. And I saw some improvements. I would love to have a training group only for women and experiment that with them, that knowledge. And he was like, Oh, I think it's a great idea. And then I created that group. Yeah. It's interesting that that was new <laughs> knowledge. I mean, at least spe applying it specifically to climbing and and yet you had been this athlete as a swimmer for for years and years and years and mm -hmm. uh is is you know and obviously you know if we're talking about menstrual cycle and and your period and things like that it's only it's only an intellectual idea for me um cuz <laughs> I'm a guy and I don't deal with that stuff so but was it you know to bring that to the table you know even for you know grown women who understand their menstrual cycle understand you know, what it does to them mentally a lot of times or whatever. Was it surprising to them for you to bring that, you know, so specifically to the table? Um, or were you telling them sort of something that they already knew? Well, actually, yeah, there were many things that surprised them because most of the people think, for example, that our weakest week is the one when we're having our periods. When right. we have our periods, uh, yeah, there are many things going on inside of us, but actually our hormone, hormonal levels are not that bad during that week. Like we feel, I don't know, we, we have cramps and that makes everything harder. But in terms of hormones, we, it's not the worst week. Actually, the worst week is the week before the period. And many people do not know that. Like right, right. when our bodies are getting prepared to have the menstruation that's like the worst week and many people do not know that many girls don't know that that that's actually the week where we are like we have the biggest tendency to to get injured because our hormonal levels are so low that's the week like 
that we are also mentally or emotionally fe feeling the worst, like many things um, are happening inside of us. And also many girls didn't know that during the ovulation days, we are stronger. And that's also like very valuable information. You can, on those days, you can train a little bit more. You can push yourself a little bit harder. You can like do more things you you are like more confident um yeah as i said like many people know know about like what happens in the menstrual week but not in the other three weeks of the menstrual cycle it's fascinating because you know like sports science uh if you you know want to call it that it it you know that i grew up and i'm i'm sure you know when you were swimming too was this era of like yeah, you just, if you feel terrible, you just push harder. Like that's, you know, exactly. that was your sort of coach's thing. Coach like, oh, you say. feel like crap today? Too bad. Like, yeah, suck it up and push harder. And, you know, it's so interesting that we have advanced, I think, in a lot of ways with, with sports science. And, and I think climbing's like right at the forefront. I mean, people like yourself, you know, experimenting and, and trying to apply these things. But um, yeah, it's fascinating to think that, that, you know, there's this whole other idea of looking at, well, why not, why not use these natural things that are happening to better your training, to better your chances of sending, you know, all these sorts of things is, is pretty fascinating. Again, as opposed to like, oh, you feel like crap, then try harder in an official sense. Like that was just the idea, like push harder, you suck. And, it's, harder, also, you know? and it's, it's also very important <clears throat> for the mental part. Like, I mean, there are some weeks you cannot always schedule your training perfectly according to your menstrual cycle. Like, for example, sometimes I had right. competitions during my premenstrual week, which is like the weakest week and you feel very bad. I mean, the good thing about it is that if you're conscious about this information, if you know what is going on, then you're going to be more patient with yourself. Like, instead of thinking like, oh, I did so bad. I am such a bad climber, you know, I trained this much and today I could not perform. Now that you know, like, oh, this is my premenstrual week. I am supposed to be weak this week. I am not going to be able to, to perform my best. So I just have to be patient and try my best how it goes. Then it's also very good for your like mental part. Like, you know, what is going, it's good to understand what is going on inside of you so that you can also like be more patient with yourself, you know, and not get frustrated that like that easily. Yeah. It's, that's also another <laughs> thing that uh, I think is growing in this, in our sport is this idea of like not beating yourself up. And I, you know, I just had a, an <laughs> interview come out that I did with Ryan Devlin where I talked about that, this, this idea of, yeah, just kind of for being a little bit kinder to yourself about performance, yeah. but it's, you know, it's always been a fine line with, with coaching, this idea of like not giving up of, you know, you know, there is some validity to like, well, you don't feel like doing this today, do it anyway. You know, that has mm -hmm. to be a part of training. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it is sort of a fine line between like not berating yourself, but also, you know, also not giving up it, those, yeah. you know what I mean? Like the fine line between those two things is, is, is sort of a, I think maybe what good coaching is about is is trying to create that line without uh, yeah. you know without send, sending like a, a a young girl home you know thinking she's terrible and she sucks but also trying to motivate that person to you know step beyond where they're comfortable 
Yeah, that's true. I, I think you are super right. Like there is a fine line between like being lazy <laughs> and being <laughs> yeah, and being like conscious and listening to your body and seeing what is really right. going on. Like in my case, as I said at the beginning, I am very disciplined and I am like, I have, this is my training plan and I'm always trying to like follow it, like, and do the hundred percent of it. And, you know, like I am, yeah, very disciplined with that and very strict with that. But I don't know if I have my period and I have, I'm having like very bad cramps. I am like, okay, I'm not doing the apps because I know it's going to get worse or, you know, <clears throat> instead of doing like maximal bouldering um, and try very hard, I am like, okay, I'm going to do some capillarization exercises and climb like in a very easier intensity or something like that. Like, yeah, like listening to your body, because I have also had so many injuries for being like very rigid. I used to be like that. Like if my training plan says that I have to do 100 pull-ups and I have cramps, I'm just going to take two more pills and you know like to not feel pain and keep doing my training that's how I used to be and then the result sometimes can be like you get injured you know so mm -hmm. I do try to listen to my body more right now um, but I am still very disciplined and I think like in my case I have really found a way to understand what that fine line is between like being lazy and like yeah listening to your body Right. Or even being, you know, like going beyond going the other direction where I'm pushing myself too hard. Exactly. Um, you know, because I mean, as, as a disciplined person and as someone you said is, is very, you know, disciplined, that that's actually a bit of an endorphin hit, too, is when you when you <clears throat> later on go like, oh, I really went beyond what I was supposed to do. So, you know what I mean? Like, I think people can push themselves too hard in that. There, there's a benefit yeah. sometimes if you get away with it and uh mm -hmm. and there's a you know just just the same way there's sort of this benefit in relaxing sometimes but um but knowing yourself is one thing and i think again like a coach you know i think about what that means and there's so many people out there coaching and what i mean by like a coach understanding a line between those two things um and for another person it's easy to understand your line mm -hmm. um because you're inside yeah. your own head so Approaching girls what, in, in your case is, is kind of fascinating in that in that way. I think what people also forget is that being disciplined in the sport does not only mean to train hard. Being disciplined also knows to understand when you have to rest and actually understand that to rest is an important part of the training because it's actually in the resting time when you assimilate your training. So you if you're training too much, if you're like overloading your body you don't have time to assimilate your training so it's like if you have done nothing at the end of the day and also like eating well so many people think oh if i am resting today i am being lazy maybe if you're resting today you're being disciplined you're doing what you have to do in order to assimilate the training that you just did that means i'm very disciplined because i can rest <laughs> with the best of them um, <laughs> let me ask you about this film. Uh, when oh, yeah. I, I mm -hmm. talked to you over the last few months, it's been something that you've been working on with some other filmmakers and uh, maybe we can seg that into, uh, where I tried to start the, the interview where we talked a bit about Colombian climbing. Um, so yeah, tell me about this film Guerreras, 
uh, which is warriors, right? Or something, some, some sort of translation like that. Um, yeah. Warrior women, <laughs> I suppose. <clears throat> Tell me about this film. The story of Guerreras, which is like women warriors, that's the translation, um, is that I have a very good friend who comes from the United States. Her name is Elisa, and she is half from the U.S., half from Costa Rica. Her mom, her mom comes from Costa Rica. She was born here. She got a scholarship to go to Colombia for a year. And that experience that she had in Colombia was very significant for her because it was like the first time that she was really like in touch with the Latin American climbing community and that she was like able to speak Spanish with everyone. So that experience was very important for her and changed her a lot, not only as a human being, but also as a climber. So when she came back to the U.S., she decided to apply to be an ambassador for a program from SCARPA, tries to like uh, improve the immersion of minor communities in the climbing world, like the Latin community, the Afro community. So she applied for that and she became an ambassador. And then she wanted to do a project for Latin America. And even though she's not Colombian, she decided to do her project in Colombia because of that experience that she had. She wanted to do a film about female climbing in Colombia. And she contacted me and told me like, oh, I want to do this film and I want you to be part of it. I want you to be one of the characters of the film. And I was like, oh, wow, I, I do want to thank you. And then we up that day we started like talking about the film and sharing ideas and everything. And at some point she told me like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this thing because it's a lot of work. I have to raise all the money to pay the filmmakers. I don't even know who the filmmakers are going to be. It's like too much. And then I told her, you know what? Let's do it together. I'm going to, I want to be one of the characters of your film, but I also want to help you as much as I can to make it possible because it's too much work for only one person. And from that day, uh, we started working together to make that film a reality. So the first thing was like, we looked for the filmmakers and then we started like doing activities to raise the money for the film. And we worked like for seven months, like contacting different climbing brands to get sponsorships. Like we created a GoFundMe account. We did different activities as the workshops that I just mentioned to raise as much money as we could. And yeah, so I am going, I was invited to give a workshop in the International Climbers Festival this year about mental training. And I talked to them about the film and they were super excited and they invited us to show the film in the International Climbers Festival. So the film has to be ready in July because that's when the <laughs> festival is going to be. And that's the reason why I went back to Colombia for a month. We filmed for a whole month. And now we're working on the editing part of the film. Yeah. And the film's going to be ready in July. The thing is that since I was invited to present the film in July, we had to start filming like in March in order to get it ready. But we still have not raised the whole amount of money that we have to pay. But the filmmakers are very nice people. And they told us, you know what, let's do it. And then you pay us whenever. So we started filming, even though we don't have the whole amount of money. But now 
we have to keep like doing different activities to be able to raise the rest of the money for them. <laughs> yeah. Was it a good thing to have uh, have the the International Climbers Festival drop a deadline on you? Did that? Do you think that helped? Um, w- would you have gotten it done uh, as as quickly without something like that? That's a good question. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think. I don't know. No. Yeah. I mean. I mean, the International Climbers Festival is huge, so I think it's a great opportunity to be able to show it there. I know that many climbers want to show their films there and it's an honor that they accepted us. So yeah, it is a good thing. And yeah, it pushed us to work harder to make it happen. So I think it's it's a positive thing. It's uh, obviously a film about women climbers based on the title. Why was that important to you um, as far as Colombia is concerned? Elisa's story is very related to that, to the fact that she shows that as the main topic. Like she was, um, she was born here in the U.S. and she started climbing when she was a very small child with her father and her father's friends. And like climbing was very important, has been very important for her all her life. But what she told me is that it was not until that, like she went to Colombia and started climbing with other women that she really like felt very empowered and she really assumed climbing as something that was hers and not something that she shared with her father because for her climbing was like an activity that she did with her father and for her it was like her father who always wanted to climb and she was like just accompanying him to spend time with him but then when she went to Colombia and started climbing with all these women she was like oh this is mine too and then like it empowered her so much that she started like trying harder things because when she was here climbing with her father, she was like not trying very hard and climbing only the same grades that her father was always trying. And then she went to Colombia and met these strong women like trying 513s and she was like, okay, I want to do that too. And she was able to climb her first 513A and she thinks that it was the fact that she was like climbing with all those older women that empowered her and made her like assume climbing in a different way. So when she went came back to the US, she was like, I want to show the story of those women there who empower me and who are like very, how do you say that? Empowerful, like people that empower others. I don't know how to say that. Right, right. Empowering, empowering, yeah. empowering. I mean, empowering. I yeah. Yeah. Empowering. Yeah. And you know, th- there is a lack of representation of the Latin American community in the climbing films. Like nowadays mm-hmm. you have a lot of climbing films, but you don't see like many climbers from Latin America in these films. And if you see a film that is done in Latin America, you see like, I don't know, Adam Ondra going to Chile to climb the hardest route there, but you don't see like the community, you don't see like, the landscapes or like a lot about the place just just see like Adam Ondra trying this hard route and we wanted to show like the community we also wanted to give Colombia like a better perspective to show people what a beautiful country it is because like here in the United States I have met so many people who don't even know that there is climate in Colombia and those who know are like oh but this is too dangerous to go there like we want to show people that it's a very nice place to go, that there, is, there are a lot of very beautiful climbing places, that the country is beautiful, that the people is very nice, are very nice. So yeah, it's 
not only about like the female climbing, but also about like showing the country like in a more positive way. And like, yeah, that maybe people get more well, yeah, interested I mean, to go to Colombia. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like I'm, I'm, you know, 50 and but I grew up in the 80s. And so like, you know, there is still this like hangover about what Colombia is all about, you know, mm -hmm. the 80s and the and the the drug wars and you know then we have the remakes of those films and you know Pablo Escobar miniseries yeah. and all these sorts of things. It's really fascinating that we you it's hard for I think Americans to escape this idea that that those things are still happening. And then if you if you pay mm -hmm. attention to politics, um you know the there there's all the politics around the FARC and all that, that sort of stuff too. But that, that was also surprising, not surprising to me, but you know, I'm, I'm game to go to these places always. And I, and I'm like, I know better than to, to have a preconceived notion about what they are. And that was, that was my takeaway was like, this place is, you know, when I was there, I was like, this place feels safer than many places I've been in the U S I mean, like, you know, it's not, it's definitely not like running gun battles in the streets or whatever, you know, <laughs> the, the TV shows and the movies might've put into my brain 25 years ago. Um, I was there for three or four weeks. I can't remember, um, how long we, we went to several different climbing areas. There are many beautiful climbing places in Colombia, but we try to find, to, to show like the most representative ones. And mm -hmm. most of them are in Cundinamarca. Cundinamarca is like the state where Bogota, the capital is. And as I told you, like, right. if you're a climber, the best place to be in Colombia would be Bogota because it is surrounded by different climbing areas. So the thing is that the film is about the, the story of six girls. It was very hard mm -hmm. to, like, choose which girls to include in the film because there are so many strong women in Colombia that have like so beautiful stories. Well, but well, at the end we have to decide about having only six of them. The thing is that also we try to include the climbing areas that where these girls wanted to climb, you know, that were like kind of special for them. Like I am one of these girls and I was filmed in a place named Macheta, which is like two hours away from Bogota. And the reason why I was filmed here is because last year I was able to climb my five, my first 513A, I'm sorry, 514A in Macheta. So they wanted to film me in that route. So they filmed me in that place and also not only because of that route, but in general terms, it's my favorite place. So I was like, I want to be filmed there. Um, there is another place like, uh, well, La Mojarra is also going to be included. La Mojarra is in another state from Colombia named um, Santander. It's like, I think, the best sport climbing place in Colombia. It's It has like 400 routes and the approach is very easy. You have like from 5.9 until 5.14D. So, like, there is something for everyone. Um, it's such a beautiful place. Like, you know, you've been there, so it's a magical place. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That's definitely yeah. the place I, I put on the the list for anybody that's going down there. Plus, the you know, the people there are awesome and, and the situation's uh, yeah, pretty exactly. much, yeah, perfectly, perfect vacation climbing. Exactly. It's such a beautiful place. I mean, it's like the climbing is really good, but also only being there is so beautiful. It's, it has a very mm -hmm. beautiful energy. 
So La Mojarra was also included. We included a place named Sutatauza because one of the girls is um, wanted to be filmed bouldering, and that's like a very good boulder place close to Bogota. To um, we film in Suezca because, well, Suezca is like the <clears throat> where sport climbing was born, more or less, in Colombia. It's like a very classic place. Um, not only for sport climbing, but also for trad climbing. It's the best place mm-hmm. in Colombia for trad climbing. So there is one girl who is more like a trad climber, and she she was filmed in that place. Suezka is like just, yeah, like the oldest place in Colombia in terms of climbing. So it had to be shown because it's where it all started. We also filmed in a place named Payande, which is in another state, in Tolima, because it's really beautiful. Like you have a river in front of the crack, so you can just climb and then get in the river and it's very beautiful. Yeah, it's another landscape. We wanted to show like different landscapes so that people get to see what Colombia is about, you know, like different landscapes and yeah, beautiful places. Uh, there is a girl who is like a mountain mountain guide and she was not, well, she was filmed in Suezka, but she was also filmed on the mountains, uh, guiding some older girls. Uh, so, yeah, there there are some scenes on the mountains, too. You know, what do you think makes the Colombian climbing community uh, special? Like, everywhere you go, there's there's a flavor. I mean, that's part of why climbers, I think, who climb outdoors <laughs> eventually want to travel to different countries and to different cultures to just to see what's different. And, and we talk a lot about the similarities, right? And that's, that's really special to be able to, you know, to show up as, as I did in Sueska and meet the climbers and we have this common ground and they want to know about where I climb and I want to know, you know, like we have those commonalities, but then every place is sort of special. What do you think drives the, 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 the Colombian climbing community that's maybe a little bit special, a little bit different than, anywhere else that you've climbed? Colombian people are very welcoming and there is a big sense of community in Colombia. Like, I don't know, maybe this sounds stupid or small or whatever, but for example, here in the United States, the fact that public transportation almost does not exist and everyone is like driving their own cars, like isolated in their cars or that you don't have here like these small like grocery stores in the corners as you have them in Colombia that you can just walk to the grocery store and you, this is a small place and every day you interact with the same person who kind of becomes your friend. But here you have like this big, Walmart, change supermarkets, whatever. And every time you go to that supermarket, then the people working there are different and you don't get to interact very much with them. Like it doesn't help you to create this sense of community because you are not really like interacting very much with the people that you see like in the stores or whatever, because it always changes in Colombia. That's different. Like you interact a lot with strangers like when you are waiting for the bus when you go to the store whatever so in colombia we have like the, this bigger sense of interacting with others and you know like talking to other people and getting to know other people it's like yeah more 
a community sense. Here in the United States, it is like a bit, little bit isolated, like you don't interact that much with others. And I think that you can see that in the climbing community too. That is also reflected in the climbing community. So yes, people or climbers here in the United States are very nice people. But in Colombia, people are like like warmer, you know, like very caring, like they really want to get to know you, to interact more with you. I think people in the United States are very concerned about maybe not getting too much in someone else's space. In Colombia, we're like always like going to you and hugging people and, you know, so <clears throat> I think that's what my friend Elisa felt in Colombia, that people were super warm and that even though people didn't know her, like they were like, they met her and the same day they were like, oh, you want to come to my house? We're going to prepare like a Colombian food for you since you are from the US and let's go climbing tomorrow again. And, you know, like it's easier to make friends in Colombia because people are willing more like to interact or are not that afraid of maybe going into someone else's space, you know? So I think that's why people who are from other countries feel so, so good in Colombia or so welcome because people show you show you like their interest in like getting to know you and i think that's very special in colombia so you're possibly going to move not permanently but on a more long-term basis to the u.s what what are you going to miss what, what's the the things that you'll probably be pining for uh, a few months into to living outside of atlanta from uh, from colombia the fact that there is almost not public transportation here like makes me crazy the the fact that everyone is like driving them, their own own cars I, in bogota i was used to bike all the time I, I had a car and i only used it to go outdoor climbing otherwise i was always biking in the city but here like the cities are designed not for people but for cars so there are many people who ask me, like, do you like Atlanta? And I am like, I don't know the city because you are always like on the highway. And then you get you take the exit to get to the place where you want to go. But you never get to really see or know the city. You just like see the places where you're going to. Otherwise, you're always on the highway. So you always feel kind of isolated. You're always on the highway, with, like between other cars. Um. I miss very much like biking in the city and having the opportunity to bike or to walk everywhere. I remember there was one day here that I needed to go to the pharmacy and I saw on Google that it only it would only take me 10 minutes walking to get to the pharmacy. And I was like, okay, I'm going to walk. Um, oh my God. Like there were no pedestrian walks to go there. So I was like beside the cars. Uh, like trying to get to the pharmacy and I was like what is this next time that I go to the pharmacy I have to go with my car because it's very dangerous to walk there so I think that's something that I'm going to miss very much and yeah what I told you that about like yeah um, for example <clears throat> here in the U.S. now that I'm working with kids I had to do this workshop with uh, safe sports we are not allowed to like interact very much with the kids that we train so we, you are not allowed like to hug them or to touch them you know like in Colombia with the kids that I 
used to work, the interaction was different. Like when they send their projects, they came and hugged me. And, you know, it was like a a whole party. And here is like when a kid sends his or her project, I am like, oh, good, good job. You know, but I am not allowed to to hug them or to kiss them, which in Colombia would be normal. And for me, that's kind of weird. Like I am a person who needs a lot of like physical contact, but because that's how we are in Latin America, we hug each other, we kiss each other. And, you know, and here it's like, people are not used to that. And we are not allowed to do that with the kids that we coach. So for me, it's always like trying to stop myself from giving too much love to someone. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Alita for sitting down and connecting from Georgia, of all places. There you go. Some love for Georgian climbers, sort of, not really, roundabout. She was in Georgia. Anyhow, if you want to connect with Alita yourself, follow what she's doing. Of course, Instagram is probably the best place. Alita Climbing is her handle over there at Instagram, and of course, you can go to the International Climbers Festival to see the premiere of their film, but I'm sure then after that it will go around the country, be available here and there. So reach out and support what she's doing, whatever she's doing, spreading that love in the world. And the GoFundMe for the film is still open. There's a link on Alita's Instagram page. Okay then, I hope the weather's good where you are, you're getting out. It's warm, but not too warm. Shirts off, but only in an appropriate way. And I hope that there's a small, cool breeze flowing across your fingertips just before you grab that crimp, making it feel sticky so you can pull down and find glory at the chains or the quad, the bunny ears, the girth hitch anchor, or maybe it's just a giant stick pounded into the mud. Whatever you're using for an anchor, don't forget to check your knots. Why do you say you feel trapped in a man's body? Well, sometimes I get the menstrual cramps real hard. (laughs) 